Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Danae Hernandez-Cortez, Assistant Professor at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. In today's episode, Danae will help us understand the results of a study she carried out with Dr. Kyle Meng on whether California's carbon market has made environmental justice problems better or worse. I'll ask her about the theory for how carbon markets could exacerbate EJ issues, the data and analysis that she and Kyle used to try to answer the question, and what the policy implications are. Stay with us. Danae Hernandez-Cortez from Arizona State University, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So, Danae, today we are going to talk about a really fascinating paper that you've published with Kyle Meng uh, from University of California, Santa Barbara, who's been on the show before. But before we talk about that paper, we always ask our guests how they got interested in energy or environmental topics, either at a young age or later in life. So what uh, kind of inspired you to take this professional route? Thank you so much for asking this. Um, Well, I am from a small city in the southeast of Mexico, Orizaba, Veracruz which is a relatively small city, and it is surrounded with mountains and sugarcane fields. My city is very close to many rural areas, and during high school, I had the opportunity to work together with some of the communities in these rural areas doing some volunteering work. And well, it was during these experiences that I realized of the strong relationship between the environment and poverty, and how many of the problems they had were due to environmental issues. And some of these issues were, say, extreme weather events and lack of water or sanitation infrastructure. So I became very interested in trying to understand why these issues were so interconnected and how we could reduce poverty overall. And well, at that age, it seemed like if I wanted to understand poverty, you had to study economics. So I I went to study economics, but really it was during my undergraduate studies where I started to work on environmental economics. And uh, some of the projects I worked on were related to topics of climate change and rural welfare. And then I realized that these type of topics were the ones that I was interested in studying. And uh, I realized that in order to study them well, I wanted to do my PhD. So I went to do my PhD. And that's how, how I became interested in more environmental economics. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I was just um, searching as you were talking about your hometown, Orizaba. um, I didn't realize that the mountain Pico de Orizaba or the volcano near your home, it's the third tallest in North America. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Well, and you're there today right now. So you're like looking at the mountain as we talk. Exactly. I can send you a picture right when we finish and you'll see the mountain. Yes, please do. And so if you're if you're listening anywhere near a screen, you can take a look at the the mountain Pico de Orizaba. It's really beautiful. Okay, so um, we could talk about your surroundings and I could get jealous for the next 30 minutes uh, or we could uh, talk about the paper uh, that we've had you on to discuss. And so the paper is called uh, Do Environmental Markets Cause Environmental Injustice? Evidence from California's Carbon Market. Can you get us started uh, with some basic background on the California carbon market and why many folks over the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years have been concerned that the carbon market could actually exacerbate environmental injustice? Yes, of course. Well, uh, it always started in 2006 when California passed the Assembly Bill 32, 
which created the first economy-wide greenhouse gas target in the U.S. And this required California greenhouse gas emissions to return to a 1990 level by 2020. And one of the central parts of these programs to achieve the reductions of greenhouse gases was the cap-and-trade program. And it was introduced in 2013 and administered by the California Air Resources Board. This program requires the participation by stationary greenhouse gas emitting facilities that produce at least 25,000 tons of carbon dioxide emissions during any year between 2009 and 2012, which was before the program. And this program became more stringent over time, uh, and it mandated a declining cap on aggregate emissions across eligible facilities. And this, this program that was created was the second world's largest carbon market by permit value, following by the emissions trading system in Europe. While greenhouse gases are globally mixed pollutant and thus they are not subject to local pollution concerns, greenhouse gases are often co-emitted with local air pollutant. And so this cap and trade program could alter local air pollution disparities by changing the amount of emissions and who is emitting those emissions. And this could alter how pollution is distributed in the environment. So this cap and trade program does not directly regulate local criteria air pollution emissions. And any changes in the spatial distribution of local air pollution concentrations might be due to the program's reallocation of local air pollution emissions that are co-produced with greenhouse gas emissions. This then leads to some environmental justice concerns, which is that low-income and minority communities are often the ones located near these most polluting facilities. And if these most polluting facilities are polluting more as a result of the program, these communities could experience a higher environmental burden, which then could exacerbate environmental disparities that they are already facing. And this was the main environmental justice concern. That's That makes a lot of sense. and. Um, you know, can, can you help us give uh, just a little bit more intuition on, you know, why is it that a cap and trade program could actually concentrate the location of emissions? Like what are the maybe economic factors that might lead to that outcome? Uh, of course. So whether a cap and trade will decrease or increase pollution emissions depends on whether greenhouse gases, which is the pollutant that is regulated, is co-emitted with other local air pollutants. So we don't know if the, if the facilities that are being regulated by, by this program will increase or decrease their emissions due to the program, given that you can accumulate permits to emit if you are not uh, achieving your cap. So this could exacerbate pollution emissions if some facilities are polluting more as a result of the program. And this is hard to calculate ex ante because you will need information of the abatement cost of these facilities and how these abatement costs are correlated with the pollutants that they are also affecting health, such as the local air pollutants. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the paper is really rich with detail, um, and, and I'd encourage folks to, to check it out. Of course, we'll have a link to it in our show notes. Um, but without getting into too much technical detail, which I know is challenging, can you give us a flavor for the type of data and the analytical tools that you and Kyle use to try to uh, get at this question of whether the carbon market was exacerbating environmental injustices? Yes, so we use data from the California's Air Resources Board 
that provides facility level information on pollutant emissions as well as regulation status and facility characteristics. And the facility characteristics are very important because we need to know where the facilities are located and some of their stack characteristics such as the height of the stack, the, the diameter of the stack, etc. This data set allows us to use first uh, this, the, the location of these facilities to understand whether there was an impact of kappa trade of pollution emissions. So that's the first thing we did. We examined whether uh, the cap and trade had an impact on pollution emissions by comparing regulated and unregulated facilities before and after the program started. This allows us to predict emissions coming uniquely from this uh, cap and trade program. And then we use these predicted emissions coming from the program together with an atmospheric transport model, which allow us to obtain how emitted pollution traveled according to atmospheric and prevailing winds to all of the communities that are located downwind from, from these facilities. And finally, after we were able to obtain the concentrations of pollutions that were coming from the program and how they were distributed in the environment, we were able to compare the differences in concentrations in disadvantaged communities before and after the cap and trade started. So in the paper, you will see that we say the environmental justice gap. And this is a term that we use to compare the concentrations that uh, disadvantaged communities are exposed to compared to non-disadvantaged communities. Great. And, and that leads to the next kind of obvious question is, um, you know, how are you defining what is a disadvantaged community and what is not a disadvantaged community in California? And these definitions matter so much as we're seeing with the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act and in all sorts of other legislation. So can you talk us through, you know, what that means in California to be a, quote, disadvantaged, unquote, community and where geographically those communities are concentrated around the state? Yes, so for our setting, we selected a policy relevant definition of disadvantaged community, and we used the California Senate Bill 535 that passed in 2012. And this requires a portion of their revenue from the auction of cap and trade permits to be directed towards benefiting disadvantaged communities. This Senate bill formally defines a disadvantaged community using the calendar screen which is a scoring system based on multiple pollution exposure and socioeconomic indicators developed by uh, the California government. In the benchmark analysis, we use the calendar screen version 1.1, which assigns disadvantage status at the zip code level and is constructed using pre-2013, so before the program indicators. This allows us to mitigate concerns that cap and trade might directly impact disadvantaged community designations. And specifically, a zip code is considered disadvantaged if it contains all or part of a census tract with a calendar screen above the top 25th percentile. And uh, these communities are located in several areas of California, particularly in some areas of Los Angeles and uh, the San Joaquin Valley, and some areas near the Bay Area. And, and of course, there are many definitions, as you just said, about uh, on how to define disadvantaged communities. So as a robustness check, we also use a later version of this calendar screen, which has the benefit of defining a disadvantaged community at a finer census tract level. So this allows us to more finely define these disadvantaged communities. Uh, and we also use other measures of disadvantage or, or other measures of environmental justice that they have been used before, such as the percentage of people, uh, of, of people of color that live in those areas. Uh, before the cap and trade started. 
That's great. And and yeah, including those different definitions can be so useful in uh, understanding all the dynamics at play in these communities. Um, so you've given us a really helpful background on the context for the paper and some of the data and analytical tools. Uh, let's get into some of the key results. Uh, what results would you like to highlight coming from the paper? Well, uh, first, uh, we find that that prior to the program, the gap in greenhouse gas emissions between regulated and unregulated facilities was increasing and at annual rate of 19 percentage points. However, we find that following the introduction of the program, this trend slowed down. So during 2012 to 2017, the cap and trade program reduced emissions annually at a rate of 9% for the case of greenhouse gases and about 5 to 3% for the case of local air pollutants. And this was for the average sample of regulated facility that we used in our study. Uh, and second, we find that across the criteria pollutants that we study, which are PM2.5, PM10, NOx, and SOx, the environmental justice gap, which it is the difference in, in concentrations that disadvantaged communities are exposed to versus non-disadvantaged communities, were widening during 2008 to 2012, which is the period prior to the cap and trade program. However, following 2013, after the introduction of the program, the environmental justice gap trend fell. And this drop in the environmental justice gap is sufficiently large that we are able to see that environmental justice gaps were actually narrowing following cap and trade program. Uh, this meant that disadvantaged communities actually experience a higher reduction of pollution coming from the program than non-disadvantaged communities. That's really interesting. And, and there's a lovely series of graphs uh, that you and Kyle construct that kind of illustrates those trends before and after the implementation of the program uh, in figure three of the paper uh, that, that people should definitely check out. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, this result is uh, is so interesting, and I'm wondering how it's been received by uh, sort of uh, different stakeholders across um, the environmental justice advocacy community, research community, and elsewhere. Uh, I'm curious whether you've gotten any pushback from environmental justice advocates who, you know, might uh, like anecdotally not agree or not have experienced some of the same things that you're finding. I'm just curious if you can talk about the reception in the communities when you've presented it, both to policymakers and researchers and other stakeholders, uh, particularly those who live uh, in disadvantaged communities. Well, uh, we have presented our, our, our paper to several communities and to some other scholars that have been studying this for a very long time. And we find some differences in methodological aspects in terms of some other studies. However, we have been uh, very fortunate to have uh, talked to them and, and, and gotten some of their concerns and even changing some of our uh, some of our methods to explore their concerns. So, for example, when we first were presenting this paper, we were only using the zip code definition of disadvantaged community. And a lot of people told us, well, maybe you would like to include a finer spatial scale, maybe say census tracts. So uh, after that, we, we said, yes, you're totally right. I think we think that it's, it's better if we look at finer, uh, a finer level of, of disaggregation. So we went on and, and tried that, and, and we found out that we found similar results. So that was very fruitful. Uh, and, and so we have been in constant communication with both uh, some of the scholars that have been studying this for a very long time and some of these communities. And well, one of the, the main concern of these communities is that 
environmental justice sometimes has been approached from the perspective of let's just try to see which policy we're implementing and see the impacts to environmental justice. And that might not be the best way to approach these concerns. And in the paper, we are very precise to say that environmental justice uh, problems need environmental justice specific policies. So taking a lot of care of representing the voices of those people who are affected and the communities that are affected is important. And, uh, and looking at these as environmental justice specific policies is also important. Right. And the cap and trade program clearly did not, uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it did not have an environmental justice kind of goal uh, when it was constructed. Is that right? Exactly. And, and, and some of these environmental justice concerns has allowed communities to talk to policymakers about their concerns and how to possibly address them. That's really interesting. Well, I'd love to ask you more about those sort of EJ-specific policies in a moment. But first, uh, one kind of more technical question, which is about uh, your use of air dispersion models uh, in this paper, which I think plays a really important role in in understanding some of the results that you're finding. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your use of air dispersion models? First of all, just kind of describe to us what they are (laughs) and what they do. Uh, And then if you could speak to the reliability of those models, like how well or how much do we know about their ability to accurately represent how pollutants actually move in the air and then how they are um, accumulating in people's bodies over time? Yeah, of course. And well, we find first that modeling air pollution dispersion is very important for our results. But first, let me go back a bit and talk about what are the other ways that researchers can use to assign pollution exposure. So first, you could assume that emissions stay within the same spatial units where they are emitted. For example, if you have one facility in a zip code, you can assign the emissions of that facility to that zip code only. Second, you could assume that emissions travel within a uniform distance from that facility. So for example, you can draw a circle surrounding the facility and assign pollution to those units within that circle. Finally, what we did is to use an air dispersion model to assign pollution concentrations. And this considers atmospheric patterns, prevailing winds, and geography to model how pollution travels. In the paper, we actually compare our results across these methodologies and find that modeling pollution dispersal is actually very important. And in order to verify the reliability of these methods, because of course, sometimes they could not be super reliable, we try to compare the pollution that we predict with the pollution recorded by pollution monitors. And we find that there is a positive association between those, which is what you would expect. Uh, One important aspect of the paper is that we also use other models who consider the secondary release of PM 2.5 to compare our results. And and we at the end find that there are similar results. The results are the same magnitude. So uh, we are comfortable to to say that this this is um, a good way of, of modeling pollution exposure. But again, we also try to compare it to other, other sources, such as the pollution monitoring uh, network, to make sure that we are correctly modeling pollution. Great. And, and for listeners who might not be familiar with the sort of secondary uh, creation of PM 2.5, can you just kind of describe what that means and why it matters for public health? Yeah, of course. So basically, we have some primary emitters of pollution. So for example, we have that some facilities might emit uh, some pollutants directly, such as SOX or NOx or PM 2.5 even. However, some of these pollutants then 
create chemical reactions in the atmosphere that can create other pollutants. So for example, uh, ozone or PM 2.5. In our case, we cannot measure ozone, but we can measure secondary release of PM 2.5 using an atmospheric transport model developed by Chris Tassum and his co-authors, uh, who is able to capture these uh, complex uh, interactions in the environment. Fascinating. So essentially, you know, uh nitrogen oxides or sulfur oxides will be released from some sort of point source and they'll go up into the atmosphere and the model will predict like how and when they break down into PM 2.5 and then how that PM 2.5 is distributed. Is that about right? Exactly. Really fascinating. So um, one other question, or I guess the next two questions I'd like to ask are both about policy. Um, the first one is one I alluded to a moment ago, which is about sort of environmental justice specific policies in California. Um, do you have any insight into the types of policies that the state is pursuing to uh, provide more kind of directly targeted uh, EJ uh, policies that reduce the uh, pollution gap that you're measuring in this paper? Yes, so a while ago, there was an Assembly Bill 617, which basically wanted to create a better uh, monitoring network near disadvantaged communities and near these environmental justice communities that are located uh, near very polluting facilities. And basically, this would allow the residents living in those areas to understand whether these facilities were polluting more and to understand the uh, amount of pollution that they were being exposed to using these monitoring networks. And I think that that policy was very interesting because it will allow people to understand their pollution uh, using monitoring information. And that was one of the issues that we first experienced when we, when we did this, this study. We had to model pollution using this complex atmospheric transport model one of the reasons why this was the case is because we don't have a lot of monitoring uh, stations in all communities in California. So trying to understand how communities are being exposed to uh, pollution via these monitoring uh, policies is important because this provides information to the community and then the community may raise concerns if they see that they are being exposed to more pollution than what is healthy for them. Right. And not only are there, you know, relative scarcity of pollution monitors uh, around the country, but we actually did an episode with Eric Zhu uh, on the podcast maybe a year or so ago in which he talked about evidence that he's found about how uh, local governments sometimes actually switch off pollution monitors when they are concerned that they might trigger some kind of uh, policy action. Uh, so this whole issue of measurement is so important and so, you know, uh, uh, complex <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And and this is a very complex question. And I think that there are many policies that can be implemented to try to address these environmental justice disparities. But in order for us to measure if they are successful or not, we first need to understand what are the baseline levels of pollutions. And we cannot do it if we don't have that information. So looking at this information can be very important. Right, right. What's the saying? What gets measured gets managed or something like that? Exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, Danae, one more policy question, and this is asking you to, you know, extrapolate beyond your study. Um, but but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. 
Um, so you and Kyle's paper, it's it's focused on California. It's exclusively about California. But I'm curious whether um, you have any thoughts as to whether these results that cap and trade has reduced the environmental justice gap uh, might be likely to hold in other jurisdictions where there is carbon pricing, such as Europe or the northeastern U.S. or, or even China uh, or other parts of the world that are implementing these programs. So can you speak to that issue of whether these results might be uh, relevant? relevant for other uh, parts of the country and other parts of the world? This is a great question. Whether cap and trade reduce or increase environmental disparities depend on several factors. Uh, so for example, for, uh, when you evaluate a greenhouse gas cap and trade program, the environmental justice gap effect depends on whether greenhouse gases and local air pollutants are co-produced. Uh, second, in practice, it is very important to be aware of the spatial relationship between polluting facilities their marginal abatement costs, as we mentioned before, and where disadvantaged communities are located with respect of these, these uh, facilities, whether they are downwind or not. Now, these characteristics can be very different in different settings. However, our results might point out to some explanations that can help generalize. So for example, first we show that in the case of the cap and trade program, among the facilities we study, cap and trade reduce greenhouse gases and local air pollutants. Second, we find that disadvantaged communities, on average, live in areas that are more polluted or that are located downstream of big polluters before the program began. And third, we find that accounting for heterogeneity in emissions results in a higher effect, which suggests that areas located near the most polluting facilities actually might experience a higher decrease of, of pollution. And of course, I would also like to emphasize that environmental markets like the cap and trade program that we are studying might not always reduce environmental justice gaps. And these environmental justice gap consequences detected in California is emerging from the state's spatial distribution of polluting facilities and the demographic characteristics of the communities that are located downstream of these facilities. In other settings, an environmental market could widen the environmental justice gaps. And it's very difficult to observe facility level marginal abatement costs and this make it hard to anticipate exactly how proposed market-based policies will alter environmental justice gaps. And in the paper, we mentioned that as a safeguard against potential widening environmental justice gaps, policies that specifically address environmental justice concerns should be considered in tandem with market-based policies. So in short, environmental justice problems need environmental justice policies in order to decrease environmental disparities. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And and I wonder also how much the like topography and physical uh, geography of the place matters. I mean, in California, you've got, you know, these broad valleys where pollution might be trapped for some periods of time and you have, uh, you know, uh, certain winds that are coming uh, in other parts of the state that might clear pollution away more quickly. Do you think that's a kind of a big issue that will vary across regions as well? Yes, of course. And also, what are other policies that are uh, that are also implemented together with these environmental environmental programs? So, for example, in the case of California, we had the Senate Bill 535, 
which dictated some of the revenue from the cap and trade program to these disadvantaged communities. However, uh, some people in the community often suggested that these policies were not being so effective at reducing local air pollution. So being aware of this type of policies that are released in tandem with, with carbon markets is important. And geography, as you said, plays an important role in that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, um, this is such a fascinating paper, Danae. We really appreciate you uh, helping us understand it. And of course, we'd encourage people to check it out um, in the show notes. The paper is called Do Environmental Markets Cause Environmental Injustice? Evidence from California's Carbon Market. So before we let you go, Danae, we'd love to ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or you've watched or you heard that you think is great uh, and you think our audience might enjoy. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Thank you so much for, for this question. And this might be a bit different, but I would like to recommend one of the latest episodes of Radio Ambulante, which is an NPR podcast that tells the stories of Latin America. But the podcast episode that I would like to recommend is El Hombre Murcielago, or The Batman. And this episode tells the story of Rodrigo Medellin, who is a Mexican professor who was one of the leading forces behind preserving the Mexican long-nosed bat, who is the bat that pollinates agave, which is the plant from which tequila and mezcal are made of. Um, and I don't know if you had heard, but in 1988, this bat was designated as an endangered species by the U.S. and later by Mexico. And Rodrigo's work allowed the preservation of this type of bat and probably the future of mezcal and tequila. And while this episode is in Spanish, there's also a translation in the episode as well. So I wanted to recommend it to your listeners that are Spanish speakers or those who would like to have Spanish in their New Year's resolution. Oh, that's such a great recommendation and, and such a great idea for uh, for New Year's resolutions for folks. And so is is this person, this professor, essentially like, can we thank him for the ongoing availability of tequila and mezcal? Which, of course, is like mezcal in particular is like one of my favorite, favorite drinks. Uh, well, I, I think you can. Uh, there, there was it was a very big issue at the time. So around 1990, there was a huge decline on the bat population caused by, a, by several factors. And Rodrigo worked together with communities as well to eat uh, stakeholders of the of the tequila and mezcal uh, production. And they worked together to try to to recover the species and try to actually increase the number of the bat. And right now, the, the numbers look much better. And it's also interesting because it's a bat that travels between Mexico and Arizona. So it's like me. I travel between Mexico and Arizona. <laughs> That's fantastic. So this New Year's, uh, we'll need to raise a toast to the long-nosed bat and Dr. Medellin for ensuring our steady supply of agave-based spirits. That's wonderful. Danae, uh, Hernandez Cortez uh, from Arizona State, thank you so much for coming on the show for these great recommendations and uh, your fantastic work with, uh, with Kyle Meng. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. 
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.